Thank you, Jonathan, Elaine, Tim, and Barry uh, for facilitating our, our worship of God this morning. Thank you, everyone, for uh, joining in with that. Um, it's, uh, it's encouraging, once again, to be uh, back in Nehemiah uh, as we picked up from where we left off last week. Um, for those of you who were here last week, we finished chapter 10. Uh, this morning, we are going to look, um, don't be scared about this, but we are going to look at chapters 11 and 12. Now, go easy. I, I know that you're all have exciting lunch plans, but um, we will be basing ourselves mostly, as Jonathan said earlier, uh, in the second half of verse 12. Um, but it is, it is good for us to go back and recap not only what we've heard in recent weeks that has brought us to this point, but then to fill in what's been happening in chapter 11. So, so the Jewish exiles who had returned to Jerusalem with the task of rebuilding the walls, they do that, they complete that by the end of chapter 6. Then chapter 7, this is very broad brushstroke stuff here, but chapter 7, they, they, we see the priority that they have on worship. Uh, that they adopt as they resettle in this city or around this city. Chapter 8, then, they, they reread and respond to the law of God, and they do so reverently, and they do so obediently. Uh, chapter 9, they confess their sins in light of what they've seen in God's holy law. Uh, they remember God's faithfulness, his unending faithfulness throughout their nation's history. And in chapter 10, they recommit themselves to the, the covenant that God had made with his people uh, that they would follow and obey, follow his laws, obey his commands, was where we were last week. And the reason they do that is because that's what it means to be a holy people of a holy God, and that we follow and obey. And then chapter 11, if you do have your Bibles there, it might be helpful just to scan through as we walk our way through this. Chapter 11, we have then the account of the people inhabiting the city of Jerusalem itself. Um, and, and that might seem like it's very late in this story, but this is because, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 7, uh, the, the physical city itself is still pretty sparse. And so people have been settling outside the city. And that goes back even to Zerubbabel's time, nearly almost 100 years before Nehemiah gets there. So the city itself hasn't really been populated yet. Some people moved in, but not everybody. And so people have been making homes around the city as the city itself was being rebuilt. In chapter 11, we see uh, what it, how it's going to work for people to move into the city. Uh, and so the city had been in a vulnerable state. The walls had been uh, flattened. The whole city almost had been flattened. And so as the rebuilding has started, and now that the walls are secure, the gates are in place, the city is safe again. And so it's going to become that bustling center of Jewish life once more. Uh, and up until now, as I said, most people had settled around. But by the time we get to chapter 11, the very first verse says, Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. And so we see already the leaders setting the tone, setting the example. They're the ones that settle in Jerusalem. And then the rest of that first paragraph in chapter 11 basically explains how a tenth of the population are chosen to go in, to live in the city. Uh, and that's, that, that process is done um, by seeking God's direction for who should live in there. Uh, so it's not the people's choice, it's God's choice, and they're, they're obedient to listening to him. And one of the ways they do that is by the casting of lots. And now that might sound a little bit foreign to us, uh, but that was, that was a common way for people to discern the law of God, the way of God in this, new, in this Old Testament time. Because from, uh, from Proverbs 16, we know that casting lots isn't just chance. No, the people firmly believed in the sovereignty of God over all things, including these lots. And so Proverbs 16, we see the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so as the people are trying to decide the tenth of the, the population who would move into the city, they do so by casting lots. And what I find amazing here is, although that might seem quite primitive to us in some ways, the people don't question it at all. The, the, the Lord has said this, so we will go. And a tenth of the people move in. One of the commentators I was, uh, I was studying with this week said this, 
that what they preferred was secondary to what God had desired. Uh, and so th- this isn't a story about how we should all then go and cast lots. No, this is a story of the obedience of people to God's leading, whatever that meant. So some of these might have had two generations who had settled outside the city, but no, the Lord has chosen us to move in, and so we will, we will do that. It's a wonderful story, a wonderful account. And so if we learn nothing else from our time this morning, although I hope and pray that we do, perhaps we can lock this reality in, this example of obedient surrender uh, to God's will by the early inhabitants of the people who rebuilt Jerusalem. Isn't that something that we would do well to emulate or long to emulate in our lives, uh, that our preferences would be secondary? It's all about what God desires. The the next section of chapter 11 then outlines those who settle in the city. And within those details, we get a picture of a a well-organized, a well-ordered city structure. There's multiple roles and positions to be filled, as well as a a harking back and a recognition of their nation's history. Um, And as we've seen before, particularly with chapter 9, those nods back to history were a reminder for the people of the day and for us as we read God's timeless word this long afterwards. These nods back to history are a reminder of God's work in his people. And so we see that reference to the Levites. We see that reference to the musicians, to the fact even that David is mentioned at this stage because they are rebuilding this life of worship and God had done so much in and through David. And so they're remembering that, tracing that back right up to their day because they know that God has been good in the past and he will continue to be so. And so this this overarching idea in in this historical account is this wonderful truth of the obedience of God's people because of their firm belief in his sovereignty, in his control, in his power, and in his might. And so that's all contained uh, within chapter 11. One other thing that I would just want to pick up on in chapter 11 uh, is the way in which Jerusalem itself as a city is explained. We see it in in verse 1 and again in verse 18, where Jerusalem is described as the holy city. The holy city. And although we might quickly glance over that phrase, maybe even recognize it as, yes, Jerusalem is the holy city. We know that um, throughout scripture. But this is significant for us because just remember that the people who are settling in this city have rebuilt it from rubble and dust. There was very little left of the city when they came back. And now they are recalling it as the holy city. This city that had once been a symbol of great power and prosperity, the city that had housed Solomon's glorious temple to the Lord, this city had been completely destroyed by the Babylonians. And why had it been destroyed? Well, if we can remember way back to our very first week, we see the, the history of that in, this, in the very last chapter of Second Chronicles. And I just want to read a couple of verses from Second Chronicles 36 because it shows that this description of Jerusalem as the holy city is something we need to take up on. So Second uh, Chronicles, which is just before Ezra, um, so Second Chronicles 36, and I just want to read two verses. Let's start in verse 14. So there's been a description of some very unfaithful kings in the latter days of Judah. And then picking it up in verse 14, we read this. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. This is a description of a very unholy place. And it gets worse. Verse 16. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. 
And so verse 17, he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. And so God had sent the Babylonians to destroy this city, to take the people into captivity. And so this is a very dark period of Israel's history. Apart from a, a faithful remnant who were, who were kept and preserved throughout, it's hard to imagine this place being described as holy. Yet here we are in chapter, tw- in chapter 11 of Nehemiah, and twice in that chapter it is described as the holy city. Well, how can that happen? How can it move from rubble and dust under the judgment of God to the holy city? Well, this is the wonderful story of God's restoring work, isn't it? I mean, the people have done well. They've worked hard. They have built things. It has been a wonderful, wonderful um, achievement in their own right. But way beyond that, they have only done what they have done because of God's power. And the restoration of the faithfulness of the city is only down to God. So they, they had been brought back from exile because of God. He, because of his faithfulness, his kindness to them, he has brought them back. And he is now in the business of restoring and rebuilding his people. And so, yes, they are seeking to live in obedience to him as a result of his kindness to them. And so even in this description of the city itself, we see this wonderful, gracious, restoring hand of God who's able to take this pile of rubble and turn it into his holy city again because of his work. And so in this very brief, easily skipped over description of the city, I think let's, let's do well to pause and recognize that we worship and serve a God who is able to make holy what was blemished. He's able to, to take a mess of, of even our sin-soaked lives and through his forgiveness and cleansing in Jesus, he's able to present us before himself as holy and blameless and righteous. And so even in the physical state of the city, we're getting a picture of God's gracious provision for his people. Now, this is indeed a story of God restoring and rebuilding his people and his place for his purpose. And for those of us who know and love Jesus, aren't we glad that God is in that work? Because we know it ourselves, many of us. Uh, let's, go, let's get finally then to chapter 12. It uh, brings us to a list of names that we see, um, at the, and maybe it reminds us back to uh, the start of chapter 7. Um, and this look back into the, is a look back to the Levites and the priests who returned with Zerubbabel, as we see in the first verse of chapter 12. Uh, and the part of this, part of the purpose of this list is again going back, but is, it is establishing the foundation of the centrality of worship for God's people. And so right from Zerubbabel's day, 538 BC, right up to it finishes in verse 26 in Nehemiah's day, They're celebrating the work of the priests. They're recognizing the work of the priests and the Levites who were there. God had gifted the Levites and the priests to his people to help lead them in their worship and understanding of their God. And so as we enter into verse 27, which is where we're going to pick up, we need to hold that theme of worship in our minds. Because as Jonathan has already said, from the rest of chapter 12, is, is, is worship and celebration. It's a, it's a record of this great account of the walls being dedicated. And so the people come together to give thanks, to give praise, and they do that to the one who is worthy of it, of God himself, of course. And so we're going to read the second half of chapter 12. And as we do so, um, let's, I do pray that we will learn this sense of joyful worship that we see here and how we can emulate that in our own lives. So let me read uh, from verse 27 of chapter 12 in Nehemiah through to the end of verse uh, 47. 
At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophanites, something, uh, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. From the, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. That's what we were saying earlier. Verse 30, when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go on top of the wall. I, had assi- I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One, one was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, towards the dung gate. Hushaiah and half the leaders of Judah followed him, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some of the priests with trumpets. And also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, and all those other people. With musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. Verse 37, at the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and passed over the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. Now, if you were here Back in week one, maybe even week uh, chapter three, when we were doing the walls of Jerusalem, we showed a diagram of the walls. Essentially, what we're going to see here are two choirs going in opposite directions and completely encircling the city until they reach the temple. And here in verse 38, we're told about the second choir. So the first choir are, are told to go to the right. The second choir then proceed in the opposite direction, verse 38. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the Tower of Ovens to the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshenna gate and the fish gate, the Tower of Hananel and the Tower of the Hundred as far as the sheep gate. At the the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I together with half the officials as well as the priests. And then the priests are listed until the middle of verse 42. The choir sang under the direction of Jezrahiah. Verse 43 is key. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions for first fruits and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. And so what we see here is a picture of joyful worship. In amongst all that detail, we see joyful worship. I think it culminates in verse 43 as we read together. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. We, we, we get the picture, don't we? This is joyful. This is joyful worship. There's great rejoicing. It must have been incredible to behold. These walls that have been destroyed, now walking on, now being walked on by these two choirs with musicians completely encircling the city. 
meeting at the temple and continuing their praises, offering sacrifices, singing, giving thanks. This is joyful worship. And so this morning, I'd love us to consider what we can learn from this example and what God may teach us about what it means to engage in him in joyful worship of him. And there are three main things that I want us to think about, uh, and they all demonstrate a very active nature in joyful worship. Now, I mean active. When I say active, I don't just mean the physical activity that we see here. I'm not suggesting that we all go out and walk. Well, I mean, if you want to. Um, But I'm not meaning that type of active. What I mean is a very decisive, a very intentional choice. These were active things that the people engaged in, which then enabled their joyful worship. And the three things that I want us to look at are the active preparation, very active participation, and very active provision. Joyful worship it seems, is active. It takes intention. It is committed to. Um, but before we get on to those three aspects of this passage, there's one place I need to, we, we need to start, and that's with God himself. You see, for, for the Jews who are worshiping in this chapter, that worship also begins with God. Did you notice in, in the middle of verse 43 that they were rejoicing because God had given them great joy? God is not only the source of their joy, he's the object of it. And so they're able to worship him because of the joy that he has given them. And I think that joy, bear with me a second because this astounded me this week. I think that joy is marvelous. Not only was it joy as they looked back at their lives and what God had done in and through them and among them, but even the ability to express joy is a gift from God. And so we are able to worship him We do it mainly here through song. There are many ways in which we can worship. But we are able to give him worship because he has given everything we need to worship him. He's given us the reasons to worship him. He's given us the fuel for that worship. But he's also given us and graciously given us in creating us in his image. He's given us the ability to express joy, to know joy, to to marvel at his wonder, to experience awe. Those are all good gifts of God. And so for us to worship him, We actually are doing so because of everything he's given to us. If I can say it here, we rejoice because he has given us great joy. The God that we worship is able to be worshipped because he's given us all the reasons we need to worship as well as the ability to do that worship. I got excited about that this week, but... I think it's amazing that they are worshiping, they are rejoicing because God had given them great joy. And we know from elsewhere in scripture that God's joy is more than just a happy celebratory feeling. This is a lasting, eternal joy. God is the the source of boundless joy. And therefore, we can rejoice. And we can rejoice whatever our circumstances. And so as, as the people arrived in Jerusalem and the city was in ruins, they still could know the joy of the Lord. As the city was completed, they could know the joy of the Lord. I think we very often appreciate and feel the joy of the Lord and and when things are going well. Of course, that's good and right, but the joy of the Lord is constant because it's based on who he is, not on what's going on around us. And so the people are able to rejoice because God had given them great joy. Let's get into these three things. Firstly, we'll we'll think about active active preparation. We've mentioned this a couple of times through Nehemiah, but once again, it's clear on this occasion that the people have undergone some preparation before coming to God and worship. Uh, And that preparation 
then enables their worship to be joyful. It's not the only ingredient, but it enables it. And so right at the start, verse 27, 28, we see at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with the songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem. And you see, there's preparations being made here, very tangible physical preparations. But, But I love the use of language here that the Levites are sought out. They're not just gathered in. They are intentionally sought out. Same with the musicians. They are gathered. They are brought together. This isn't just spontaneous, although spontaneous worship is definitely possible and wonderful and true and uplifting. But this level of preparation here then enables the songs to be sung. It enables the, the instruments to be played because they have intentionally gathered the musician. And so, and so there's an element of planning and preparation that's gone on here that enables their worship to be expressed in this musical way. So there's a corporate element here to this preparation that they gathered the Levites and the Levites and the musicians then lead the corporate body. But there's also a very personal preparation that goes on. In verse 30, we read that the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially. They purified the people, the gates and the wall. And this is, this is a significant part of preparing to worship. Because it shows us and it speaks to us of the the internal preparation that we need to be able to then joyfully worship. This is about preparing our hearts to worship. And so the Levites help to purify the people here. It reminds us of episodes like Exodus 19 when the people are consecrated and purified before the God comes down onto Mount Sinai to give the law. But, But why? Why is this purification, why is this very active preparation needed before we can come in to worship? Or why is it helpful to? Well, it's because the people here, they are clearly realizing that they are coming into the presence and very intentionally turning towards the presence of their holy God. And the holy God is something we've spoken of lots through this series. But we must recognize that the power of God's holiness is dangerous for sinners. And so the people purified themselves in tangible ways, in obedience to how God had laid down that they must do before they come to the temple. But in the act of purifying and purifying themselves and coming before God, laying down their hearts before him, in the act of doing that, that also then prepares you for worship. Because in in laying down the the, the sins that that hold us back, that so easily entangle, we, we can't help but be brought to the feet of our Father. And therefore, as we come to him, our eyes are then taken to his greatness and his gloriousness and his holiness. As as we know his forgiveness and his purity, we then are led to worship. And so they come to the worship gathering, having purified themselves, and therefore they come already ready to worship. So it doesn't take three songs for them to get into it. Do you know what I mean? I'm sorry, I don't mean to be harsh about that, but it's not an emotional thing. They, they, they come prepared to worship. They come ready to, to offload the praise that's already bubbling up in their hearts. And so they come prepared to worship and to, to, to give God the honor and the praise he deserves. Now, I realize that we, we don't live under that same requirement of the law. We talked about this last week where we need to purify ourselves ceremonially to come to the temple. Jesus Christ 
has, because of the sin sacrifice that he made for us, he has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law so that we, through faith and repentance in him, we can know the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. And so we, can, we are welcomed into the presence of God at all times and in all places. But, but, but in the joy of receiving grace upon grace upon grace, let's never lose sight of the holy power of God who we're welcomed by. The God who bestows that grace upon us. And so as we, not that we are ever outside of his presence, but on occasions like this, when we gather for corporate worship, perhaps it would be helpful for us to take, try to build time, to take time to prepare our hearts to come before God. Perhaps that means uh, taking some time on a Sunday morning before joining here. Perhaps that's bringing those sins that we know we've tolerated this week before God in the quiet moments that we often have at the beginnings of our service. Certainly on a daily basis as we're coming before the Lord in prayer or to read his word, let's lay down our hearts before him. Let's prepare to meet with him. He is a good and gracious and loving God. And at one and the same time, he is the holy God. And the joyful worship that we can bring is enabled further when we prepare our hearts before him. And so however it takes place uh, in our lives, in the context of Nehemiah here, where we're, we're being shown an example of public worship gathering, that worship was aided by the individual commitment to holiness. And, and, and I know that, that for many of us, all of us maybe, that there's a sense in which we find ourselves rushing in to a service of worship and rushing away. And so how can we build in that time to slow down and to bring our heart before God when we're coming to worship him. So that our, our heartfelt worship is already starting to bubble. And, and our hearts are soft before the Lord. That was, a, that was a, possibly a mistimed off-the-cuff remark about taking three songs to warm up. I, I don't mean, you know my heart. I, I love song worship and I love gathering here. I love being led in worship. And sometimes we do need someone to lead us in that way. Um, Please forgive my, my quick tongue. Um, the second uh, active thing that needs to happen is active participation. Now, we see this, and, and obviously we see this in a number of ways. Primarily, we see it in the fact that tons of people walk. Okay, so there is an active participation going on. They're either walking on the walls or they gather in Jerusalem or they gather at the temple. And so, of course, there is that sense of action. So the choirs are definitely taking place, but actually we see that it's much more than the choirs. There's a place for everyone in this celebration. And so we read in verse 43, on that day, they offered great sacrifices. That day is still referring to the choirs. They offered that great, offer great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. And we, we were reminded of the women and children who were there when the law was being read, they were made mention of. When the people were confessing their sins, they were made mention of. This is a, a community, a family event, a great celebration of the joy of the Lord. And there was a willingness to share of the wonderful things that God had done so that the whole community could worship uh, as they gathered around his temple. Uh, and so there's a bunch of rules that needed to be fulfilled. Yes, there are priests, there are Levites, there are musicians. All of that is good and right. But the idea here is that, that everyone is taking part because of the joy of God. Everyone had a reason to be joyful because they had seen God move. They had heard his word. They had committed to the covenant once again. And so they had reason to, to celebrate with him. 
and, and as we fast forward and, and think about what that has to teach us about the church, of course, as we are called by salvation, by Jesus Christ to himself, we are then welcomed into his family. Salvation is, of course, an individual response to Jesus Christ. But in that response, we are welcomed into a corporate body. And we see lots of language in the New Testament that relate to that language, like uh, of the body, for example, of 1 Corinthians 12, or the flock of God, or a family, or a building being, conduct, or being constructed by lots of individual stones to create one building. And so, of course, coming to faith is an individual response to Christ. No one else can do that for you on your behalf. But in doing so, in responding to him as an individual, we are welcomed into his family. And therefore, we are gifted with brothers and sisters. Maybe when you look around here, you don't think of that as a gift. But I encourage you to. We are gifted with brothers and sisters. And so we all have the opportunity to participate in God's worship. 1 Corinthians 12, in that language of the body, is a wonderful example of showing that, that everyone has a part to play. And that doesn't just mean that to be involved, to participate in corporate worship means that you need to be on the platform. No, not at all. We all have the option and plenty of opportunities to do that. And so whether that's in encouraging one another with God's word, whether that's in the love and compassion that we share with one another, Maybe it's witnessing alongside one another as we go from here. Maybe it's just that midweek text to let someone know that you're praying for them or sharing God's word. There are lots of ways in which we demonstrate the reality of our life and our love together as we are bonded by Christ as family. And then as family, we encourage one another into worship. Even by the collective singing, aren't our hearts warmed as we hear the volume of God's people giving him praise. And so, yes, faith, my trust in Jesus Christ, is an individual thing in the, ter- in the sense that I have to respond to his offer for forgiveness for my heart. But I, in doing so, he welcomes us into his family. And in doing that, he gives all of us a part to play. And so let's be ready to actively participate in this joyful worship of him, this whole life worship of his. Finally, then, let's, um, let's consider how we see this example of joyful worship um, involving active provision. Now, I think when we hit verse 44, I think we then moved away from that day of celebration. I think this is then a general thing that we see from verse 44 to 47. Um, but this is part of what it means. This is an outworking of part of what it means to participate. That in participating, we also provide for the worship of God's people. And so in verse 43, we see them talking about the great sacrifices that were given. And we know, as we saw last week in in chapter 10, that those sacrifices were as a result of people giving for the work. They were giving towards the sacrifice and even, even right down to the wood that was provided for the altar. They were provided by the community. And so there's a way in which they actively provide for the sacrifices. And then verse 44 to 47, we see another dimension of this sacrificial provision of the people. Um, We saw it again back in chapter 10. And of course, this was part of God's law as they were then commanded to give and provide for the work at the temple. But this is actually speaking to the provision for those who are actively involved in the leading of the worship of the people. Look with me at verse 47, if you would. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside... 
the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. Now, now please hear me. This is not a text that I am now going to use to tar- start talking about salaries for church staff. Right? That's, not, that's not what this is about. I don't believe that that's the heart of this passage. Because actually what I want to show is the general idea here that people have such a deep priority on the worship of God that they are willing out of their own pockets, out of their own crops to provide for his worship at the temple. And so their love of God, their devotion to his word, their desire to worship him meant that the people were willing to actively provide for his work in the ways that he had demonstrated. And as a general principle, I think that's challenging for all of us. We, we very often think of that kind of provision as in terms of my financial giving. That might well be part of our worshipful response. But it's the question behind that that I want us to focus on. Does my love for God, does my devotion for his word, does my desire to worship him mean that I'm willing to actively provide for his work in the way that he leads me to? Whether that's work here whether that's work across our island, across our world, are we willing, out of a response to the deep love and the priority that we have for his name to be sung loudly over our community, are we willing to to actively provide in that way, in whatever way he would lead us to? And so we see this day of joyful worship, which then seemed to begin this this lifestyle of worship. Now, unfortunately, by the time next week when we get to chapter 13, we see that that lifestyle doesn't last forever. But we can see that the heart's desire is there at this stage to give God the joyful worship that he deserves. And that involved active preparation, active participation, and active provision for that worship to take place. Now, there's one point that I want us to finish on. Uh, and that's just the final, the final phrase of verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And this is it. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Isn't that wonderful? This joyful worship, of course, is directed to God. Absolutely. It is enjoyed with one another but it is spread beyond their gathering. And I think that's exciting for us. Oh, that that the sound of rejoicing would be heard far away from this place. And not just heard audibly, but, but noticed, observed, felt by those that we live around. That they would, that the worship of our God would spill out from these walls. Many of us really enjoyed that aspect of having the marquee last summer where the sound that we were creating was spread around our community. But this is not just about audible volume, although let's crank it up. Um, this, is, no, uh, this is not just uh, talking about that. But if we, if we zoom out a little bit and see that the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem was heard from far away. Oh, that the people around us would see and hear the sound of rejoicing because God gives us great joy. That is joyful worship, isn't it? And therefore, a little bit like we see in 1 Peter 2, 12, that people would see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. May God indeed be glorified as we joyfully worship, as we prepare our hearts to come individually and corporately, 
as we participate in what he calls us to, as we provide for his work here and around the world. May he be worshipped. May he be praised. May the sound of our rejoicing in him be heard far away. And may we see people come to know the source of true joy and lasting peace and eternal salvation. Amen. Father, we pray that this indeed would be so. Lord, that we wouldn't be a that we would, we would be a place of joyful worship to you. And, and yes, we mean that somewhat in terms of music and singing, but Lord, in terms of our lifestyle of worship for you, that in view of your great mercy, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That is our true and proper worship. And so we pray, Father, that as we gather, yes, and as we scatter, yes, May the sound of rejoicing of your joy ring out from our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us when we do have those opportunities to gather physically and and corporately. Would you help us to actively prepare for that? As we come before you in the quiet of our daily lives, would we prepare our hearts to meet with you? Would we participate, Father, in the way that you are leading us and guiding us to in, your worship, in the worship of you by serving you in this place and in the, in the world that you've placed us in? And Father, if you're leading us to, would you, would you call us to provide for your worship, provide for the worship of your name, the extension of your kingdom in your work in this place and in the wider world? Lord, would you help us Like we saw at the start of chapter 11, would you help us to submit fully to your ways? May we trust you with everything that we have. And ultimately, therefore, would you receive the honor and the glory and the worship that you deserve? And we pray these things boldly and in faith and ask that you would have your way with us. Amen.